have a background in early music, and you have brought a lot of early music that people have never heard of to new audiences. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you want to do that and what you think that early music has to offer contemporary audiences. Oh, I feel like right off the bat, we have so many threats to thread together in half an hour. It will be very interesting. Um, let's see. So I was a very classically trained singer. I wouldn't say just early music. So I went to you know, conservatory and school. I was a cathedral choir girl in England. And, you know, doing doing the hard, difficult, competitive, repetitive work, also fun, but, you know, that's where you, you get good at things. And at some point in, in college, I was still just in, you know, opera and voice major. I was not great. I was really average. But what always attracted me was... Uh, making music with other people. So I was really into the chamber music. I was really into choir and not quite what other people were really into, which is competitive solo um, roles. And and um, in that process, I found new music and I found early music. So I joined an ensemble led by one of the compositional um, uh, faculty at the school that does only music that's super weird, new and super weird old. And as I was em- embarking on the journey, this is, you know, when I was 20 years old, I thought, this is so great because there's not a book or lots of recordings telling you what is the correct way to do this. There are many ways to do this. And, you know, your job is to get educated and then be imaginative and, and kind of um, investigate what your relationship with is with this music and what also is really wonderful is I believe that really early music and really new music ask more questions for us now for example um, if you want to do music from 14th century Iberia you first have to know what Iberia is and then after reading for a little bit you realize that you learn a lot about the history and politics and social structure of its time. And then you just get really sucked into this fascination. And before you know it, you know a lot of new things about the world. So I think that's a fascination of that particular period. Of course, the music is beautiful and varied and really um, introduced the world to me. So uh, after that, several years later, I went to graduate school for early music. And that was fun. <laughs> and I started doing the competitive gigging thing, I call it, in, in, the, uh, in the Northeast. So touring with uh, different ensembles um, and recording and you know doing different tours. And then something was bothering me. What's that something was bothering me was um, people, uh, we were still engaged in a very similar sport, I would say, than regular uh, competitive music, even though the content is slightly different, is still usually a authoritative man on top of an organization uh, directing everybody of how things should go. And then when things don't go right, we we don't really have a lot of say. We don't really have to be artists. So from that point on, I'm starting to ask a lot of questions and, and forge some new grounds. So that's the early music piece, and we'll talk more later about other things. <laughs> so how do you translate something like 14th century Iberian tunes or songs into 
a form that contemporary audiences can understand and also that speak to contemporary issues because a lot of your programming um, is about using music to talk about or to um, engage people in a reflection of what is happening at the present. How could 14th century Iberian music be relevant to us today? Oh, so, so easy. <laughs> so 14th century, do you know what happened in 14th century? This is when the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims all lived together. They made music together. They were neighbors. They lived in relative peace. You know, the, the government were fighting. The politicians are doing things. But the people, their music and the cuisine and the languages were mixed together. So if you understand the story behind the music, then suddenly there's a many more layers. So I've done a good amount of 14th century, 13th century Iberian music in the context of disobedient women. There were a group of nuns in 13th century Iberia who... Um, who were actually princesses or leftover queens or the, the king's aunt. Yes, oh, I love looking at your face. So exciting. <laughs> and they decided that a life of privilege, but also dying in childbirth when you're really young and getting married to someone you don't love is not for them. These are intellectuals. So they asked their daddy, can you build me a really fancy monastery or send me there so I can pursue uh, intellectual things? And then, yes, the answer is yes. And for us, what's so wonderful is now we have one of the most comprehensive collection of polyphonic music, multi-part music by women who obviously did virtuosic music. And it's in their hands. It was written in their hands. Amazing. How is it that music making music creates community because that's also one of the things that it seems you is part of your mission um you talk about um you you talk about how making music inspires compassion can you talk about how that works well first if you set that as a goal <laughs> that that is how you achieve it um I think if you truly look into everything deeply, just like when you get to know someone deeply, you get to see the different layers, and the layers will in, will then inform you of how to be compassionate. Um, let me think of how to say it in a different way. Um, a lot of the work I do now is a combination of the different influences. So uh, a long time ago, uh, I, I was an immigrant. I moved to the US when I was uh, 17 years old. Um, I was an undergrad in music and really confused. I was really confused because I was told before I came here from England that America is, you know, wealthy and I know <laughs> wealthy and comfortable <laughs> and beautiful and green mm -hmm. and people are nice. And, um, and you had a surprise or two, huh? <laughs> yes. And I moved to Miami. <laughs> so very confused, very confused. And my mind couldn't really couldn't make sense of it. And I, I, I also grew up in a m more sheltered way than not. And in Hong Kong. And um, so I started studying also sociology in undergrad. And then I started volunteering at the local community center, and I started being the director of training for a um, nonprofit that works with um, homeless youths. 
And then I started getting really into my first job was actually uh, being as a, a teacher at an inner city school for teen moms. And then throughout the years, I also did a lot of outreach in prison and jails, correctional centers, and work with a lot of homeless and inner city um, reproductive groups, you know, uh, causes. And but for the longest time, I don't see, I didn't see how it relates to what I do on the other side, which mm-hmm. is music. I don't see how Mozart, Mozart, and working with homeless people have anything to do with it, each other. And my bad, <laughs> I was young. <laughs> I haven't seen the connection yet. So I was doing everything kind of concurrently, you know, at different places. And and then something crazy happened to me seven years ago. Do you know this? You didn't know this. Oh, get ready for this. Um, seven years ago, I was on my honeymoon trip, and I was on the Costa Concordia. Have you heard of that? Costa Concordia is the cruise ship that sank off the Mediterranean Sea. And I was on that ship. So right before that, I was I just founded the Broken Consort not very long ago, which is my professional touring ensemble. My career was going well in Boston. Um, you know, I was really anxious all the time because that's sort of the, the environment you're in, but also on the road to doing the kind of work that I thought I wanted to do. Um, so... Long story short, I have to make this a short story. Uh, I saw people dying in front of my eyes. I saw um, uh, lots of crazy things, crazy things. And so you were <laughs> on this ship as it was sinking. Yes. There are lots of information on the internet if you Google it. So anyway, so that brought about a. We didn't die, obviously, and but we saw a lot of things. It changed my outlook quite a bit. I remember as we were scrambling on the deck, we could have died. I, I said to myself, if I could get out of here alive, I'm not going to be so afraid anymore. I'm, I'm going to have my life be governed by love, not by fear. I know it sounds so common. People say that all the time, but, but that was a real pledge. And so um, on the other side of that, was PTSD, never had that before. I never saw a psychologist or seen a shrink before that moment, but I was not well. I couldn't get out of bed. I could not show up to work. And I remember the therapist said to me, you need to go to work. You need to pretend as if you liked it. So I would write in my sheet music, pretend as if you like it. Smile, I would in cues in performances and I was still touring um, everywhere. So that lasted you know, quite a while. And in the middle of the therapy, maybe five, six months in, I was doing therapy every week, Um, still really unwell. Uh, The therapist said, you know, you're very lucky because you are an artist. That didn't even occur to me. (laughs) Um, You're an artist and you can make meaning out of this because you're not going to find justice out of this. There's no justice in this. So see if you can do something. So I went home and thought about it for a long time, and I decided I want to write music about this experience. Mind you that prior to that, I was not a composer. 
Oh, interesting. <laughs> so this is what started composing for you. Yep, because I didn't see how, like I said, other people's composition would have anything to do with this experience. And I have so much to say, so much pain and processing and, yeah, so many things I want to say. So I made a pledge, uh, made a promise with my husband that he will finish a book. He's going to write a memoir. And he's similar. He was trained as a playwright but did not write anything substantial since he finished his training and finally has something meaningful and I said I will write an album and of course there were record companies that were interested you know of course because that seemed like it would be lucrative and I for the first time in my life then I actually said no to the large establishments I said no to institutions because I wanted to see what would happen if I just do whatever it is that I want Never ha had that before. And so uh, I did. So in the one-year anniversary of the accident, I released a full-length album. It was my first one. And he released a book. And that led to many other things. And that was actually really healing because instead of sitting around being feeling very much like... I didn't feel like a victim. I definitely just feel really low and disappointed at humanity. And I decided to do something about it. And I think the process healed me. And... Going forward from that point, my music and my activism and my decision to bring this process to more people has really cemented and intensified. So it's so writing an, an album, <laughs> very ambitious, helped you to make some meaning of this situation. How is it that making music with other people helps them to maybe not be as disappointed with humans or as as you um, said once, when in doubt, make music. Why? What does music do that people need and people need to do together? So on a really superficial or simple low level, <laughs> whenever you're making music, you're not in the other space, which is doing other things. <laughs> so there were times when I was so sad that the only time I wasn't crying was when I was making music. So that's number one. Number two, now you're responsible for something bigger than yourself, but the outcome is something beautiful. You know, it's not practical. Music is so completely impractical. <laughs> We spend hours and hours, hundreds of hours of time for that one second or five seconds, right, of, of uh, transcendence that we might be able to achieve if we got lucky. And being able to work towards something in a way so frivolous, I believe, uh, really uh, cement your bond. And if, if the culture in, the, in that community of making music is not an authoritative one, but a, a loving one, it's, it really asks you to get to know people really well, mm -hmm. you know? And a really good chamber ensemble are always like this. A really good chamber ensemble, everybody knows everybody's strengths, but we also know your worst qualities. And it's our job to help each other cover it up and not bring it out or slowly develop them, slowly overcome them over time. And so it's a really slow, really uh, immersive process of getting to know people. And it's not for everyone. And I think in the reality of um, contemporary society, we don't really have much of that space. How do you ask for excellence but have time and 
kindness in the process. And yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the founding of the Big Mouth Society, starting with the name? (laughs) Oh, that's a long story, too. Um, But I'll try to make it easy. So you see, there's this social activism. There is all of my professional um, activities nationally. Uh, There is all of these ensembles in Portland that other people have started and that asked me to help them uh, develop and and these salon series that I've developed myself, all of these kind of things were floating around in several piles when I moved to Portland uh, five, five and a half years ago. And, and it was fine with me <laughs> until uh, I did a show uh, three years ago where I, perf- I performed naked, uh-huh, talking about the feminine body and what it means to have a feminine body and, and overcoming you know certain limitations of that. I did that show with two other ladies, uh, artists from um, around the country. But anyway, after that show, I have somehow attracted a group of really dedicated, middle-aged, really awesome women. <laughs> and they they wanted to help. They wanted to make this bigger. So uh, one of them became a student and a friend and said, Emily, I am quite sick and tired of watching you run a nonprofit out of your own pocket because I also am not really money-minded in that way. I just want to do things. And in order to do a lot of things, you have to sometimes sideline the money part (laughs) and just go, it will take care of itself. And I truly believe in that. And so uh, at some point she said, "I, I can help you turn this entire thing into a nonprofit. But I said, I don't want this to be about me. So let's get a bunch of people in the community in different uh, area of this to get together in a room and talk. So we talked for around two, two months, two, three months about what it is that we want to do. The first alliteration of Big Mouth was um, an artist collective, not just with musicians, but also with photographers, with, um, you know, uh, fine art. Yes, that's the very first uh, one. And and. And the one thing that's really important to me is anything that I'm, in, I'm involved in, I like to let it organically change. You know, sometimes a thing needs time to become what they need to become. And so uh, two years in, we realized that we really are a music organization. The other things we do, we're fine, but they're not as great because there are other people who are as inspired as I am as a musician to lead those organizations that focus on those things. And we just don't have as many in-house inspirations. So um, the word big mouth is, (laughs) we were talking about names for a long time, just lots of ideas. And so you you know that big mouth is basically a CSA. Everybody pays within the community, right? And so it's a community-supported organization. It's not a grant-supported. It's not rich people-supported. It's all the people making the music and going to the concert pace into this pot. So it's kind of an artist collective. It totally is an artist collective, you know, but it is not seen in music. It's common in photography. It's common in dance in a way, but I don't believe that it has been in music in a cross-spectrum way. That means from amateurs to professional, you're all under one roof and producing a series that mix these performances together. You know, usually when you go to a concert series, they're either just a community choir or only professionals. 
but you don't see them interacting on a daily basis. And for that, we're really proud. Uh, so the word big mouth was, um, <laughs> as I was growing up, I was seen as being really unattractive in Hong Kong. And my relatives and schoolmates are always saying like, oh, your mouth is so big and your forehead so big. If your mouth weren't so big, then you would be pretty. <laughs> and well, miraculously, it's seen as attractive in the United States. So I guess it's fine now. But um, I, 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 I thought I brought it up. I said, oh, I like the word big mouth because yeah. a big mouth can say things. That's right. <laughs> you know, there's a sense of, of uh, uh, people have a big mouth speak the truth right yeah yeah so and laugh harder and eat yeah. more yeah <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about the concert that um you have coming up with um the big mouth society yes so this is our third cold songs warm songs concert which um happens during the holiday seasons and everybody likes to go to warm sweet you know choir concert around that november time and so personally, my favorite growing up is a thing called Lessons and Carols, which is an Anglican tradition. So you go to church, then you sit down, and then they do different readings interspersed with really wonderful carols and then, um, and then some congregational singing. I like the format, and I don't like I don't like the religion anymore. And so I keep thinking, how do we keep a lot of these rituals that people need and love and turn it into something that works for us? So there we have in November a show where we're going, you're going to hear readings from diff in eight different languages talking about change and love and death and um, coming alive, you know, many different topics in different languages, including Danish, Turkish, Chinese. <laughs> so you, you get the picture. And the music itself is from all around the world about these topics. We have music from Taiwan, we have music from Brazil, we have music from Venezuela, we have music from the US, Italy. So again, you get the picture. So you're treated to a really rich experience of many different things. And the idea is, I hope people would come and when they walk out of there, they feel accepted and uplifted. And um, not, uh, yeah, that that's that's sort of the, the, the idea of the show. And we have artists from all around the world and we've been working on this for, you know, three solid months now. If people want to find out more about the show and also about your work, where can they go? They can go to www.big-mouth.org for Big Mouth. So we're always, always looking for more interesting musicians who are really passionate and dedicated to the idea of, for example, um, kindness, uh, equality, discovering new things and working really hard toward them and um, we are also uh, looking for audience members who would feel intrigued and moved by these products and these projects that we do so again www.big-mouth.org and one thing about us in terms of activism is all of our shows are offered to the public at a, uh, at a pay-as-you-can uh, scale so no one is turned away for lack of fun and you don't have to justify yourself so do come and be kind if you can. And we always say, hey, give one hour of your salary. If you make lots of money, that's wonderful. Give to the arts. If you don't make money, come anyway. 
and be moved. And as for my own um, artistic activities, uh, you can go to emily-lao.com. I just released an album five days ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Get up, get up. Mm-hmm.